Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the, the gift that you have given us in the body of Christ and that through Jesus we come together with a common purpose, a common vision, a common um, faith. And we pray that we are strengthened in that faith of who you are, what you've done for us in Christ uh, by the lesson we have today and the passage that you've presented to us. We ask your Holy Spirit to be here to, to give us wisdom and discernment and to, um, to help us focus and grow in our zeal for our love for you and our love for each other and our desire to, to uh, proclaim the gospel to everyone that we come in contact with. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. <clears throat> um, I, I don't know why I did this. I accidentally turned to Leviticus. Let me get back over here to... Exodus 12, it's just like a thing, I keep going back to Leviticus. Exodus 12, verse 43, we're going to be going through uh, 1243 through 1310, and you're going to see um, something familiar. Guess what we're going over again? The Passover. Passover. Good grief, this has been like a month of Sundays on the Passover. And here we are repeating it again. We're repeating the the code, the law of the Passover festival. Why would Moses keep coming back to this? Why would God direct him to keep reiterating the statutes involving the Passover feast again? What do you think? It must be important. important. There's a principle in uh, Hebrew literature we talked about before. Um, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What is significant about Why you got to say it three times? What does that mean? Go ahead, go ahead and swallow. Hey, Longs, how are you doing? So, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What does it mean? Is, is one holy not enough? Okay. Yes. Why is it important, though, in Hebrew literature to say things again? What is it? Emphasis. emphasis. You say it twice, it's kind of a big deal. You say it three times, it's a really big deal. And in this situation, we have the Passover laws, not all at once, but in three different sections, again, reiterated. It's important. This is the defining event for um, the history of Israel, is the Passover. And so it is gone to again and again and again. You'll see it again in Deuteronomy. You'll see it again in, in, in uh, Leviticus. Um, it's, it's everywhere. And of course referred to by in the historical narratives of the kings and other places. So it's a big deal. And so we're coming back to it again. A little bit different information given here and it has some interesting implications that I hope that, uh, that we can bring out. So let's start. Exodus 12 verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner, foreigner, no foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. 
If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then it may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand as a and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Didn't we hear this already? Didn't we go through this already? Emphasis. He's emphasizing, again, the importance of the Passover. By the time we get to three, uh, thirteen three, you've heard it three times. But we're at, we have a little bit more information on this, a little bit different take on it. Um, who can eat this? The citizens, the what? The actual people of Israel? Is that what you mean? People that have been circumcised. Okay. Covenant people, maybe? There oh, you go. That's a good word. Covenant people? Uh, who else? Who, who cannot eat of it? Sorry, I heard foreigner. Why? What's the point of that? They're not God's people. They're not God's people, but they're there. They're with them. I mean... Well, if they haven't been circumcised, then they're obviously not interested in following <clears throat> Okay. No interest. I feel like I'm... Do like Morse code whenever I let this board. I agree. That's so There's no interest in Yahweh here. If you're not making the effort, if they're not part of the covenant community by taking on the sign of uh, being circumcised, they're not interested. They don't profess trust in Yahweh, and they're not a member of the covenant community. 
and the participation is restricted to those within the Israelite nation. Except who? What foreigners can be part of Passover? Sojourners. What is a sojourner? I need to just do that. Uh, <laughs> um, it's an extended, they have an extended place that they, they for an extended period of time, they're living with the Israelites, right? They have all the rights, well, I say, they have a lot of rights as sojourners. They can, they can, uh, they can have assistance, protection of the people if they're attacked or whatever. Um, they have the right of, um, you know, uh, of, um, uh, to, to, to contribute to the tithe, they have they have all these kinds of options that they can do um, as a sojourner. But in order to take the Passover, what what still has to happen with a sojourner? That's the key, isn't it? There's a sign of the covenant that they um, that that in order to participate in this feast, uh, they have to undergo, and it's and it's a sign of. Of faith, right? I trust that God is real. I trust that the God of the Hebrews is the right God that I need to be about serving. And even as foreigners, they can they can participate. Um, you have three set, three types of people here. There's the son of a foreigner that, that temporarily dwells with him and doesn't profess. He's not circumcised. He's restricted. But you have a slave in Israel who is now part of the covenant people, which is odd. Someone who's bought with money. And circumcised in your house may may uh, participate in the Passover, and yet there's another foreigner in verse 45, also translated in other places as temporary resident. He's not staying long. He's not part of the community. He's passing through to you know I don't know Saudi Arabia or whatever, and 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 so there's no reason for him to be. He has no connection to the covenant God at all. And then the last one is this hired worker guy, this mercenary worker um, in Israel. And both, both of those groups really have no commitment, and therefore they're denied the, the right. <clears throat> this redemptive festival is for the people of God alone. It's not universal. Ism. Ism. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the picture we get here? All right. Um, look at verse forty-six through forty-one. There's a verse forty-six, especially forty-six through what? 51. Fifty-one. You're going backwards. <laughs> if you could read, if you could read the verses backwards, it says Obama. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, gotta get over the. Come on in. That's that's okay. Come join us. Add to the chaos. Um, so look at uh, John nineteen thirty six. Read it for me, somebody. John nineteen thirty six. It's twelve thirty eight. I think is the page number. John nineteen thirty six. 
For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, why does it say that? Why is John saying that? I mean, he's quoting here verse 46 out of chapter 12 in Exodus. He's modifying a little bit. What do you do with that? Is that a fair use of the Old Testament, though? I mean, does it say not one of his bones will be broken? It's talking about the lamb, right? This Passover lamb. What do you do with that? Well, the Passover is a picture of Christ's sacrifice. Okay. And we're getting that from John. Right? And we're getting that from other places, 1 Corinthians and other places. Notice the New Testament's use of the Old. All the law and the prophets speak of Christ, is what he said. And here you have a direct reference by the Apostle John at the crucifixion talking about how Christ is fulfilling the picture, the shadow of the Passover lamb. The most defining event in Israel's history finds its fulfillment in Christ. Is that a big deal? I mean, think of it as a Jew, and suddenly the thing that your whole identity is wrapped around, this feast, this bringing out of Egypt, it'd be like, well, I don't even want to compare. It's sort of like redefining the Revolutionary War, you know, in terms of a person. Um, although we don't really value our history probably as much as they do. Um, it, it's still that same kind of idea. This is a defining thing, and yet he, he, has, he has redefined it in the person of Christ. Christ has redefined it in his, in his um, sacrifice. So, um, what, what do we have here? In contrast to the foreigner, the temporary resident, the hired worker, who, who is to take it? Verse, uh, verse uh, 47, who is to do this feast? There's that phrase again, isn't it? The assembly. Some translations would say the synagogue of Israel, which is interesting. The congregation of Israel as a people. This is a communal event. Again, we see a picture of of all of them doing it. Um, In contrast to those who who are not allowed to participate, you have all the congregation, all who belong to God, eat the lamb. Um... All right, 49 says, There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. This is type of merism again. This is the one law of all of those who are circumcised, all of those who are part of the covenant community. What is significant about that? He's just made it exclusive to covenant community, and yet in that covenant community he's including foreigners who trust God enough to be circumcised. What's significant about that? Kind of pointing to the New Testament where Gentiles would be welcomed in. Sure, and, and also points back to Genesis with the promise of Abraham that he would be a blessing to all nations. There's more than just Hebrews being blessed here. It's a type of merism. What was the response of the people? Verse 50. 
What was her response to this? They're obedient. Again, we, the, another picture. They get the law of God, they hear the law of God, and they respond to it in trust and in faith um, that they are obedient. The language indicates absolute obedience to the Word of God. And then 51 says, on that very day, we talked last time about the historical claims that the, the Bible makes. And again, it's making it again uh, here with the Passover on that very day. All right. Chapter 13. There's a weird interlude here. We've been talking about the Passover the second time here. Then we have this interlude about the firstborn. What is up with that? Why is that there? The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Why is that here? I mean, he talks later about the firstborn uh, in, in verse 11. Why not just kind of, you know, as an editor, I would try to group things into the same place. Why is the firstborn consecration here before we get to the Feast of Unleavened Bread? What, what purpose is there? Right? So there's kind of a, an association there. In what way? What is he saying by separate out for me the firstborn? Set apart, sanctify, make holy the firstborn. Well, there, there, there's an idea that they were judged, and so their firstborn were taken as a judgment. And Israel's could have as well, but for the mercy of God, redeeming them, saving them. And so there's that reminder that generally in, in, in Middle Eastern culture, what is the firstborn, what, what is this idea of firstborn? What does that involve? Okay, there's, there's lineage, lineage. Okay, they're favored. It's the favored son, right? My sister would certainly say that. Um, the favored son is the firstborn, um, and 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 you know they they're 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 guaranteed, even in Hebrew law, like two thirds of the inheritance, and then everybody else gets a third. Is it always the firstborn? No. I mean, God calls. Israel in, I think, chapter 4 in Exodus, let my people go, Israel is my firstborn son. Are they the first nation? Jacob is my firstborn. Was he born first? There was an issue there. Let me say Jacob. Firstborn can mean first in chronology, but it also means a lot of times in the Bible what? Chosen, election, okay. What else? Well, it kind of points to, to Christ, too. This is like one of those but gods because all the Hebrew culture was firstborn, is the, the big deal. Mm-hmm. But God, Jesus the second, the second Adam. David is referred to as the firstborn. Right. And he was the seventh in line. His little one out here. Yeah. Right. 
it has an idea of preeminence, doesn't it? Of favored, of chosen, of set apart for a purpose of, of, of ruling um, when he shouldn't be. What an odd thing. There's a, there's a significance here of the connection between the Passover and the consecration of the firstborn. What God had destroyed in Egypt, he redeems in Israel. They belong to him. The first fruits of the land belong to God. And that is true with their animals and their children. And we'll get back to that in a little bit. Um, Verse 3. Moses says something very interesting here. Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What does that mean? The house of slavery. Well, there's a there's been some archaeological digs uh, where they have kind of unearthed some places near known sites of building where there are villages, cities that are walled, where the, the workers would be inside this walled village next to the city site that they're building. So they're basically caged, trapped in this place until they're let out to work and then whatever. It's considered a house you know, it's, it's, that's a prison, basically, a worker prison that they were at. And so he's referring to that, that kind of idea. Um, especially, I think, the one near Thebes was uncovered, and, it, and they had slaves that worked on the royal tombs in the Valley of the Kings. So it's just a giant slave house to the Israelites. The word abib um, is used for barley crop that is ripe for harvest, just so you know, um, if you're ever in the mood for barley, just remember a beeb is um, is where is where that uh, it happens. It's believed to be April because that's when that harvest comes in. Anyway, just a little information. Verse five: Keep this service in this month. Why use the language of service? What are we talking about here? Who had they been serving? Who are they now serving? God. And God alone, right? And this is a this is again a reference to your master is no longer man; it's me. I've I've shown that he is merely a, a man. I am God. He's contrasting uh, that the that the Israelites no longer serve the Egyptians; they serve Yahweh alone. Um, Again, we see this idea of seven days to eat the unleavened blo- the un- bread. The unleavened bread. Um, this morning we were driving in, and the the girls were reading their reading for today, which just happened to be First Corinthians five through seven. So um, I said, Audrey, what what's the what are you reading? And she said, He said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I said, Okay, what does that mean? Yeast is bad. <laughs> So what do you, what's the picture there? She goes, well, it kind of looks like your bread. Um, it's un- <laughs> so we got to get into a discussion about the Passover this morning on the way in. And, you know, the bread. Um, wh- what is the seven days? We talked about this before. What, what is the seven day kind of a, a symbol of? Completion. Completion, right. And this moves to kind of a crescendo deal at the end. What happens at the end of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread? What do they all do? 
after the seven days are completed. You're thinking of lamb. Yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah, well, that's what happens. Well, at the end of, was it at the end of the seven days, if it wasn't all? Verse 7. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. With verse 6, verse 6 is where I'm looking. They have a feast. They made bread pudding. They have for a party. Well, that's what well, they made croutons out of mine, but um, there's a feast. There's a law to party. There's a law that 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 they should be happy and and rejoice and remember what God has done. That's the law. He commands a feast, a celebration of their redemption from slavery. Why command something like that? Why not just let it be organic? Why command? Thankfulness and a rem- and a remembrance of their redemption. Why command that? Just keep thinking that it's going to be kind of hard to be thankful for unleavened bread on the seventh day. <laughs> That's what comes. To so Frodo says to so so Frodo Frodo says to Samwise, "What what do we have to eat? Oh look, lambus bread, more lambus bread. Is that kind of the idea you have?" I don't go much for Elvish food, but uh, anyway. So the end of seven days, you have unleavened bread that's been there a while. I think that they're probably celebrating more than just the unleavened bread. Why are they commanded to celebrate? Centuries later, they're still celebrating this. Because God freed them. Because God freed them. From their slavery. Right? And what... Okay. I think he allows us to partake in it. I mean, this is like a means of grace that he we get. We're like when you involve your life in something that makes it more meaningful. You know, sure. You just get a head knowledge of it. You actually do something. If he hadn't set this on the calendar every year, what would happen naturally? They would forget. They would forget. Don't we forget? Don't we get calloused to what Christ has done for us over time? We do the routine. We come to church on Sunday. Oh, I'm gonna get out. We do that. We forget. This is a gift. The community of Christ is a gift. That we've all been redeemed and forgiven of sin against a holy God is a gift. And we get calloused. Do this in remembrance of me, he says. To cause us to remember. Because our bread, our bread gets stale. <laughs> Our remembrance of what he's done gets stale and crusty. Yes? Sorry. One thing I thought about was um, now when we think of it as justification and sanctification, well, justification in Exodus was God brought them out of Egypt. They didn't do anything. God was the one that brought all the plagues and everything. They Mm -hmm. didn't do that. He brought them out. But now he brought them out to, like, they need to start doing this stuff, like the pastor. They have to do do things. Mm -hmm. It's not just sit back and. Let God. Let go, let God. He allows them to be involved in it. Right, and commands them to be involved in it. They're to work out their understanding of God's redemption, for it is God who works in them to will and to do according to his good pleasure. There's a, a very real picture here of our natural bent of 
unthankfulness. And he is commanding them to be thankful so that that's always before them, that that's always the goal they strive toward, and it's a means of grace to them. And it's not individual. It's not just, you know, I mean, you know, Joshua's doing his thing, I'm going to do my thing over here. What is he saying in verse 7? Previously when we talked about unleavened bread, there's supposed to be no leaven in the house. What does it say in verse 7? Wow, what a burden. No leaven within your borders, literally. How you do that? What does that take? That kind of effort? What? It's like you have to work together. What? That's crazy. Work together? You can't just be responsible for your own house? It's a communal effort. It involves, you have this gift, you have this gift, you have this gift, and we're all working together to make sure this happens within our borders on this day for this feast. And not only that, they're also commanded to talk to their kids. What is verse 8? What's the catechism they're given for their kids? It's because of what the Lord did for me that I am teacher. That's very complex, isn't it? What a hard thing to teach a kid. <laughs> But they're supposed to go through this with them. It's very simple, and it goes to the very heart of the issue, the salvation of the people of God from slavery. Now, verse 9 is interesting, because it led to this practice in Second Temple Judaism of actually wearing these leather things on their heads and on their arms that, that were called phylacteries, I think they're called. And, and the Pharisees in... What does it say? Is it in Hebrew? Okay. Um, the Pharisees would wear these things, you know, on during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they'd wear these books on their heads. And they'd have this verse in them and others about keeping it before their eyes, keeping it, you know. Now, <clears throat> I believe in taking the Bible literally. I believe we should read poetry as poetry. We should read narratives as narratives. Letters didactic as didactic. That's a little wooden literalism, which that term in itself is a metaphor, but that's another story. Um, They're taking this so narrowly that they're doing this arms, and you're sinning if you're not doing it. What is the idea here? That's, That's looking to the... That's looking at the individual trees rather than the big forest. What is the picture here in verse 9? What were they supposed to do? It wasn't, it wasn't just that they were taking it literally. It's that they were taking the peacock attitude like they always do. Well, yeah. Look at me. I'm really... I'm really, I'm really holy. I'm really I'm Baptist. I'm really spiritual. Yeah. I'm really Baptist. I've got, uh, I've got the HCSB, you know, the Hardcore Southern Baptist Bible. That's me. And... That's what they're doing. They're hardcore Southern Pharisees. Um, when it was meant to just change their frame of mind. Exactly. In what way? What would that look like? If we were to keep the gospel before our eyes and at our hands all the time, what would that look like? Your heart is soft. And you're in constant remembrance and aware of the grace that you've received. You'd have to be, wouldn't you? Yeah. Can we do that? Have we ever done that? (laughs) 
I think there are moments of time where the gospel hits you hard. But what does it look like to actually live that out? To constantly have a remembrance of not me, but him. It's like when we take the Lord's Supper. It's a Christ wanted us to do it in remembrance of him, but the work that he did on the cross, but that's also self examination. Mm-hmm. Right. The reality of knowing where we are without Christ. Mm-hmm. And who we are in Christ. Yes. If we're, it's not a beat down. You're right. It's a, it's an examination of of where we are. Are we being who we're called to be? Are we? Am I striving toward who I am in union with Christ? Am I striving who I am in the community? That, to which I've been placed by God. Um, the passage doesn't call for a book on your head. It calls for the reflection of who we are in Christ, a thankfulness of what he's done for us, and a, and a desire and a zeal to serve his people so that we're building each other up in, in, in the faith. And they're to remember this. In verse 10, to remember it from year to year, literally from days to days. This is not something that is great, we did this once and we're not going to ever do it again. This is a constant, this, is, this characterizes who they are. It stamps them as a people. All right. In this passage, we are introduced for the first time the firstborn of Israel being set apart. To God. They belong to him because he spared them when he destroyed the firstborn of the Egyptians. This passage, uh, 13, 1 and 2, is referenced in Luke 2, 22 through 24. Somebody read that for me. Luke 2, 22 through 24. Luke 2, 22 through 24. Just, just three verses. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb should be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Christ fulfills this law, his parents fulfill it on his behalf, of being consecrated, set apart as the firstborn. And in fact, throughout the New Testament, Christ is called the firstborn. For example, in, in Romans 8.29, the firstborn of many brothers. Turn to Colossians 1. Fifteen. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? Any ideas? Now, a good Jehovah's Witness will tell you. (laughs) See? See? Jesus was created. He is the firstborn of all creation. 
What does that mean? <laughs> I'll tell you what they do. No, well, <laughs> they do something worse. They add the word other. He is the firstborn of all other creation. For by him all other things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All other things were created through him and for him, and he is before all other things. You see how that works? No textual justification for that word being added whatsoever. Complete fabrication. And it's meant to do one thing, to um, continue the Arian heresy from the 3rd century. (laughs) That's all that is. How do you respond to that? What do you do with that? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What do you do with that? Okay. Well, they add A there. Word was A God. So, what do you do with that? You got a guy knocking on your door. He's got a nice little suit on. He's unprepared. He's not going to answer his door when he sees it. Always be ready. No, that first rule of thumb: know your heretic. Um, <laughs> and then, like immediately after, I bought this book called "The Kingdom of the Cults." Uh, I haven't read it yet. Yeah, wow, for me. that's great. <laughs> so, what do you do with this idea of first? Well, what have we just discussed about firstborn? Does it always mean chronological order? No. What does it mean? Preeminence. And verse 16 says that, doesn't it? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, or thrones or dominions or rules or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Now, Jehovah's Witness will tell you that Jesus actually was the incarnation of the first created angel, Michael. He lived on earth as a man, was killed, and resurrected spiritually, not physically, resurrected spiritually and came back to earth as the angel Michael where he sits as the first archangel. And that's it. That's what they'll tell you. But that's not what it means. Firstborn is preeminence, not chronology. Firstborn is set apart, sanctified, holy, and all things are held together by his hand, that's not an angel thing. That's a God thing. He is before all things, and in in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's the idea. For in him... I don't understand what they do with this one. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Um, Hebrews 1.6, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Well, if he's an angel, he's worshiping himself. What? 
Let all God's angels worship him. Revelation 1.5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. John 1.3 All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I don't know how much more clear you can be. He didn't make himself. He eternally existed, which is what we see in verses 1 and 2. He was in the beginning with God. In our is that word that means eternally past. I like taking a Jehovah's Witness to John 1, 3 and see what they do with that. It's a fun, fun exercise. I commend it to you. If you can remember the difference between Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism, I think that's a great way to, <laughs> way to do it. Now here's the thing that's interesting to me. You have all this preeminence language of Christ. All of this um, amazing, uh, set-apart, sanctified, holy Christ stuff going on here. And then you have a verse like Hebrews 12, 22-23. But you, y'all, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. What does that mean? The assembly of the firstborn. Who is that talking about? The church. The church the congregation of this preeminent Christ, this firstborn of the dead. What an amazing statement to make about the people of God, the congregation of the firstborn, the congregation of the preeminent one. There's a short-term word for this. There's this little phrase that the, that the apostles use. Uh, Romans 1 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's the firstborn, the assembly of the firstborn is saints. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Does that put an obligation on us? Yea, us. Uh oh. What, is it, what does it call us to do? To be who we are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6. This is another thing we went over this morning in the car on the way here this morning. Uh, Emma asked Emma, what are you reading? She said, I'm reading about flea sexual immorality. I went, oh, great. How old are you? Um, <laughs> yes, do that, always. Uh, let's see, 19. 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Separate to me all the firstborn. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. You're bought with a price. Look at 7, 
23. You were bought with a price. Again, this is Passover language. Do not become slaves of men. What does he mean by that? Don't become slaves of men. Glorify God in your body. What does that mean? What would that look like if we did that consistently in our church? How do you glorify God in your body? And he's talking about sexual immorality here. There are other things that are as equally sinful that we do. Glorify God at Cassolet. Hello, we're almost wrapped up. What does that look like? What would that look like if each of us took that seriously, if we understood we're not our own, we're bought with a price? Would that be distinct, maybe? A little different? A little weird around the edges compared to the rest of the world? I'm not my own. I'm not going to assert my rights. What do you think? Give me some answers. What would that look like? How would we do things differently than we do now? Well, I mean, like you said, we don't focus on like our rights. I deserve this, you know. Well, this isn't right. You know, I I did this and they didn't do this, and well, that's not right. So I mean, it's completely empty of yourself and not even one little concern. I mean, what your whole life is about is glorifying God. Say that statement a lot, but I mean, it's just completely humbling yourself and staying in the Word to gain wisdom so that we know how to act in certain situations. There's a very odd passage in Corinthians for me as a lawyer that talks about how they were taking each other to court over things. And Paul says, you're doing this in front of unbelievers. You're going to judges that throw you in jail because you're a Christian to get rights, your rights enforced against your brother in Christ. What are you thinking? And he says, he asks this question. Wouldn't it better, wouldn't it be better to be wronged? Wouldn't it be better to suffer wrong than what? Bring reproach on the one who bought you, who paid for you. Be set apart. Now, personally, that might impact me financially, but that's okay. Be set apart for the gospel. Yeah, I mean, what if you work towards something for 50 years and you, you think it's going to work out this right way and then somebody just screws you over and it just all goes to loss? I mean, how do you act in that situation? Yeah. You're supposed to show Christ and just, it shouldn't concern you. I mean, things that little things of this world, trivial things, money, occupation, success, mm-hmm. our image, none of that matters. Right. I mean, it's all about. Now, I will say, Paul did emphasize that he was a Roman, and he used his Roman citizen rights whenever he was being beaten. I think that's a good use of your rights as a citizen to say, by the way, I'm an American citizen. There is something called a constitution. Remember that? That's okay. Well, that gave him the chance to go before um, he went before the, the different judges. And, and did like, what? He, he pressed them to say, hey, listen, you know, right. you need to, to follow the word, and they, they didn't do it. But he was able to be faith, a faithful witness in the highest levels of government because of he what he humbly. said. He did it humbly. All right. All of the response of the Roman official is kind of funny whenever he says, oh, you're a Roman? Oh, no. Well, let's send you over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, 
thought for this week. What would it look like if we really took that seriously, bought with a price, separated, sanctified? How would we treat each other? How would we treat those around us who are not in Christ? What would that look like? Okay. Yeah, that's another thing. People aren't in Christ, and we need to remember that. If somebody sins toward you, lies to you, that shouldn't, that shouldn't shock you because that's who they are. And they're watching how you respond. And they're watching how you respond. Somebody, if it's not them, it's a third party right. hearing the whole thing. Right. Somebody said to me one time, why would you be surprised when a blind man steps on your foot? Right. It's the attitude I think we should take with unbelievers. Mm -hmm. Just like with our brothers, we are supposed to hold them accountable and mm -hmm. to keep them in God. The, Chad taught on that passage recently, and it was very good because he said something that there's a debt owed. <laughs> a debt owed to your brothers because of what you've been forgiven, you've been bought. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you don't repay God for your salvation, but you owe your brothers because if you're not showing the same mercy you've received then you don't really think much of the mercy you did receive. That's the thing. We imitate what we prize. Chad talks about dunking a ball. Some kind of thing. I don't know. He's, anyway, it's a good sermon. Listen to it. it, it I think it applies here too. Um, anyway, good. Any other, any other questions? Any other comments? We need, to, we need to stop. Okay, let's, let's do that. We'll pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, we confess we don't do this. We don't um, humble ourselves. We don't keep in our minds remembrance that you have redeemed us in Christ, that you set us apart, and that we should be different. Not weird. Not abrasive. Not weird for the sake of being weird but distinct because of the mark that you've left on our hearts by your incredible mercy. Teach us to be imitators of Christ, not because it's a duty to repay you by imitating Christ, but because we are awed and overwhelmed by the mercy we've received in him, that we want to emulate that. We want to show that picture because we, we, um, we, want, to, we want to be what we love. And if we love him less than, um, than, than choking somebody to make them repay us the little they owe us, then, then we don't understand the gospel at all. So we pray for hearts that are thankful, that remember what you've done for us in Christ, and that uh, strive to, to show what he's done for us by how we treat each other and those around us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.